If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. In this ad for the Mobile One brand, I have 30 seconds to remind you about your first time driving. Remember the feeling, the freedom, how the world felt bigger and smaller at the same time? Because you were in the driver's seat. The truth is driving never changed. You did. You got a job, a phone, and then a phone that was also a computer with emails that could find you anywhere. And then you were trapped. But here's the good news. It's never too late to break free. Mobile One, for the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us slash radio to learn more. Hello, you're listening to the BBC History Magazine podcast. I'm Dave Musgrove, the magazine's editor. And I'm Sue Wingrove, the deputy editor. This is our March podcast, and coming up we have... Some of the big ones, the, the, the really big ones, they would have seen coming for them and you wouldn't really have to be able to do much about it. That was Glenn Ford, who will be talking about the new location of the Battle of Bosworth. People in Italy were very worried about the food situation, and particularly the threat of unfair distribution and favouritism. So people, uh, according to some opinion polls, accepted rationing. And that was Ina Zvainija Bajivoska talking about rationing during the Second World War. Before we carry on, please indulge us for an advertisement. This summer, join fellow history enthusiasts in the Oxford Berkeley programme. Live and study at Merton College and immerse yourself in fascinating history topics such as the Royal Navy in the 19th century, British society between the wars, the nature of revolution and more. The three-week seminars run from July 19 through to August 7. Find out more about the Oxford Berkeley programme by visiting extension.berkeley.edu forward slash Oxford. That's extension.berkeley.edu forward slash Oxford. This monthly podcast is produced by the team behind BBC History magazine, the UK's best-selling history title. We'll tell you how to get hold of a copy later on. Okay, so the first interview is with Glenn Ford, the archaeologist behind a major survey to investigate the location of the 1485 Battle of Bosworth. Now, that was the last major conflict of the Wars of the Roses, where Richard III famously died and was replaced by Henry VII, who was the first of the Tudor dynasty. Bosworth was fought in Leicestershire, we know that, but debate over the exact location has been rumbling for some time. Ford and his team of archaeologists and metal detectors have now found what they think is convincing evidence to pinpoint the battle site. And that evidence comes in the form of cannonballs and curious metal artefacts which have been found in some marshy fields a couple of miles away from where the battle was traditionally located. I was going to record a chat with with Glenn at the field in question, 
but this is what you would have got. So instead, we talked in the less windy and muddy visitor centre. Now do please excuse the occasional clumping of people walking around on the floor above. We found the location of the Battle of Bosworth. Is that correct? We have, yeah. and we're absolutely certain. The evidence is incontrovertible. Do you think, do you think anyone is going to disagree with, with, with what you've said? I think when they see the artefacts, then they'll be convinced. Okay, so we'd better just uh, take the story back a bit. So a few months ago, you announced that, uh, that the battlefield had been discovered, yeah. um, and this was for you a, um, a, a survey, metal detecting, and, and archaeological survey of, of the fields uh, around this battlefield visitor centre and a little bit further away. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you found some dramatic things, didn't you? We, we'd been working since 2005 mm. on this. The first three years, the project's supposed to last for three years. The first three years, things just didn't come out right. We did all the... We went through all the right steps. We did all this work systematically. We reconstructed the landscape. We looked at the original documents for the battle, found all the topographical clues tried to find those places in the landscape, soil analysis, the whole works, and it wouldn't quite come together. We found an area of marshland, marsh is reported in the battle accounts, mm. you know, Richard, Richard is on one side, Henry's on the other, Henry manoeuvres around this marsh. If we found the marsh, we'd found the battlefield, effectively, in this landscape because it's not a common feature of the Leicestershire landscape but we couldn't make the thing work in the landscape and we found a marsh but when the carbon 14 dates came back it said Anglo-Saxon it went in the Anglo-Saxon period we were doing systematic archaeological survey with metal detectors and we find one or two objects that almost certainly had to be related to the battle but this wasn't the battlefield you know you could tell you were near Mm. But we worked out, we worked in different directions, and we still couldn't find it. And it wasn't really until the last week of the survey, we got this one block of land we hadn't looked at. We'd surveyed one side, the other, and you know it, it was right on the periphery of the survey area. And we went there on this last, the beginning of the last week, and it was a case of, well, we're either going to find it today or we're not going to find it at all. And an hour later, one round shot. Yeah. Artillery round shot. Couldn't be anything other than the battle. And then suddenly, so that means you get more time and you can, and you, yep. and, and you find. How many pieces of round shot have you found? We've got 25 round shot fired by artillery during the battle. We've got three small, much smaller bullets of lead, which we think are fired from hand cannons. Yeah. So, in all, there are 28 munitions, yeah. um, and that's an awful lot. Yeah, There's, yeah. There, you know, Towton, there are two from 20 years of survey. Bosworth is different to Towton. In those, ten, in those sort of 20 years, this, the, the nature of warfare has changed. The artillery are coming in in much larger numbers, it would appear. Um, so that, that, was, that was the key evidence. Um, and then, in the last season we're still doing a little bit of field work we got the other artifacts starting to appear yeah um 
and that's the point at which we got the absolute clincher, yeah. which is the badge of Richard III. Yeah, which is a brilliant find, isn't it? I mean, you, you couldn't have been. Yeah. You must have been over the moon when that came out of the ground. Actually, I was in America. <laughs> I came back from holiday and they'd found it. Um, but yeah, it, it's it's the find. If, if anybody had said, what do you want to find on Bosworth Battlefield and where yeah. do you want to find it? It would have been a silver gilt badge in the shape of a boar next to a marsh. Yeah. And we got it. Do you think, does, does that tell us, what, is that where Richard fell or is that taking it just too far in You can't say for certain that that is the location. What What it suggests very strongly is that badge was worn by a knight in Richard's retinue. Mm. You only he only would give silver gilt badges to knights or above. Mm. It's almost certainly somebody in his retinue and that chap would have ridden with him. Yeah. In that last charge. Yeah. It suggests that after he just failed to get to Henry, mm. killed his standard bearer. He was driven back by Stanley's forces. Mm. The suggestion is from the archaeology that it's he's being driven back into that area of marshland and somewhere near where that badge was found was probably Sandyford where Richard was killed. Yeah. So we're talking now in the, in the lovely new visitor centre. Well, it's not that new now, but in, in, yeah. the, in, the, in the new, in the Battlefield Visitor Centre. We've just been down to the site of where the, the battlefield is mm. and it was a, a bit too chilly to chat on top of the hill. That's right. Um, so it's a couple of miles away. You go down there, and it's a it's a farmer's field um, with a Roman road going going past it. Yeah. Uh, and uh, some sort of low hills in the distance, and you can see up to the battlefield visitor, and you can see the flag here flying about, up. About two miles away. Yeah. So you go there, and do you do you find yourself sort of envisaging how that battle might have happened there? Can you can you picture? Can you can you describe what the, what scene you think? Right. Might the, have there is a major problem, which is. In the year we've had to investigate the site, we've been able to collect artefacts across about a square kilometre. Mm. But compared to, say, a 17th century battlefield, the number of objects we're getting is incredibly small. It takes dozens and dozens of hours to get one object that relates to the battle. Yeah. And so the density of that distribution is very low, and, and to interpret it is very difficult. So I've got some ideas as to what it might mean and how it... It it proves where the battle was fought. That's beyond doubt. You can distinguish between the area where the artillery were firing and a scatter of... a small scatter off into the distance, which is probably the route. And it links to the documents, you know, in terms of where the marsh is, it sits in the right location. That scatter that goes off into the distance stops where Dadlington Windmill once stood yeah. and the Duke of Norfolk, it says in the ballad, was killed beside a windmill. So that, it broadly fits. The problem is, how do you position the battles on the ground, the deployments? Mm. How do you unpick those events? That's incredibly difficult because what you normally see on a battlefield is action moving across yeah. and back and things, you know, over a couple of hours because... It probably did last a couple of hours. That's certainly what one of the documents says. Yeah. You're dealing with quite a complex set of activity. And if you get one set of archaeology from an early phase overlapping with a later set, how do you distinguish those? It's incredibly difficult to do so. Yeah. So not only have we got few finds, but we're probably looking at superimposed action. Yeah. 
therefore, anything we say now might change yeah. with future research. But my guess is that the two spreads of artillery round shot represent the two sides of the battle. Yeah. One Richard, one Henry. Yeah. That the scatter, the, the light scatter of objects that starts with the gilded guard from a sword yeah. and ends with the boar badge. My gut feeling about that is it's the cavalry action at the end of the battle that happens to run across the area where the earlier infantry action was. I might be wrong about that. But I think probably Richard charged down the Roman road that Henry was sitting back, as the documents say, well back from the action. And Richard saw his chance, charged down the road. The fighting started where we found the sword guard. And that at that point, William Stanley came in and drove Richard back into the marsh. Yeah. But when you've got 20 objects or so scattered across three or four fields, making that teller story is incredibly difficult. And what you don't know, which is really interesting, isn't it, is... is how these, uh, how how the how the round shot was fired, how how far it went, and what it, I know you've yeah. done some tests on that, yeah. which is really exciting, isn't it? So, what, what's what's your view on that? How far were they? We are a long way away from answering the questions. There's been very little work done because because this is the first time that there's any been any large scale distribution found on a battlefield. Nobody's really done the work. So what we're doing is we're starting from scratch. We're looking at the munitions. We're gonna. We're doing scientific analysis of the munitions. We're using neutron tomography to see the internal structure of them and so forth. Once we understand them, we're also looking at guns of the period in order to put the two things together in reproduction and fire them. That's the next step. Once we can reproduce the gunpowder, which is being worked on at Cranfield University, once we get the gun and we're borrowing one from the National Army Museum. They've had one built some years ago. A reasonable reproduction for what we need. Once we understand the munitions, we'll put all three together and carry out some firing experiments that may give us an idea on range. It may give us an idea on the destructive power that they've got. We did some experiments with modern gunpowder and a modern barrel and the 60mm round shot went for a mile, uh, sorry, a kilometre. Whether with gunpowder of the period it would have anything like that range, I doubt. Yeah, and it bounced. <laughs> it bounced a whole series of times, and, and when you look at the round shot, you see the very distinctive evidence on it. Because it's lead, it takes all sorts of marks, yeah. and that evidence shows that it, it bounced, some of them about three, four, five times. When you then put it next to one that we've collected from the battlefield, you see the same evidence. So some of the round shot from the battlefield have bounced, and you can see, prove it. That's an extremely scary proposition, isn't it? Can you, sort of, <laughs> you, you can imagine that the, the soldiers there stood there. And would they be able to see something bouncing towards them? How fast? I mean, how fast is it going? Is it... They're, yeah, they're, some of the big ones, the, the, the really big ones, they would have seen coming for them, and you wouldn't really have to be able to do much about no, it. You just see a, a massive, big, bouncing stone football type thing coming towards your head. Yeah, and if you if you look at some of the accounts of of battles of the period there's one is Castillon I think it is and it talks about the artillery rounds going through six men my god so you're taking out a whole file effectively yeah so some of the rounds we've got undoubtedly went in one side and out the other yeah so this 
quite quite a, a powerful weapon. Which, wh- however, the the tests pan out. Yeah. Clearly, it's something which which we had a destructive force to it, and it's quite. It feels quite early to me. I'm not a battlefield expert. It feels yeah. quite early for this sort of power to be demonstrated on a battlefield. There, there is actually good documentary evidence for artillery being used in large number on the battlefields of Europe in the 1470s, certainly. Yeah. Um, 1480s, definitely. Yeah. The thing about this is that we've got the archaeology of it. So we're not just looking at the documents. We can now start to ask new questions. But it's used in a different way to a lot of later artillery, um, you're not using case shot, you know, you, that, that's close quarter weapon, that's right. a close quarter munition in the 17th century. What they're using is small guns, 30 millimeter, 60 millimeter, as the main weapons, and there's lots of them. Mm. Um, so it's very different to the way they used artillery before. But the other thing about it is, if you read, for example, Machiavelli's um, Guide to Warfare, mm. uh, the earliest manual, effectively, yeah. what he says is, Actually, artillery is still not much use. Mm. Um, put them out in front or put them on the flanks, fire off one salvo, then get them out of the way and go in. Yeah. And that might be what we're looking at at Bosworth. Yeah. You know, the guns lined up in front of both armies, single salvo, and then draw the guns away and into the hand-to-hand action, yeah. or into the arrow storm and then the hand-to-hand action. Yeah. So we're probably, with the artillery, we're seeing step one in the battle, the first phase... We've got the artillery exchange. We've got scatter of artefacts that shows hand-to-hand action. You know, that that broken sword guard is absolutely on the spot where the fighting was taking place. What we haven't got is the great arrow storm. Yeah. That will have taken place near where we are in, you know, somewhere in that zone. What we don't yet know is where that is, and we don't even know if the arrows survived. They're made of iron. Yeah. Iron decays far more rapidly than lead or copper alloy. So they may not be there anymore. But what we would like to do, if we can get the resources together for another season, is to go back and intensively look for the iron artefacts. Up until now, we've ignored the iron as far as possible because it takes so long. There is so much iron junk in the field. What we'd like to do is go back and intensively search across those scatters of other artefacts and try to find the arrow storm. If we can find the arrow storm, then you can really position the different phases of the battle. Yeah. What struck me just from standing there looking at the battlefield is obviously there is that marshy area, the important fenny section of yeah. the battlefield. And what what chance of, of, of you getting some money to look in there in a wetland perspective, Gosh. looking for leather... And wood and things like that. That, I think, is too far away in terms of resources and even the prospecting technology to do that. Because you're, although it's a small area of marshland, mm. it's still a big chunk of land to look at. And I don't know how you would actually investigate that in a realistic fashion. Because if you think the artefacts we're recovering through metal detecting are incredibly widely spread. Mm. Um how you would go to a small area of marshland and look, you know, a metre deep, find leather objects. It, it's not something that I think is practical at the moment. Our next target really is, let's see if the arrow storm is there. Sometime in the future, someone else with better techniques 
in the future may be able to look in that marshland if it still survives then. Because obviously it's been drained, things will be decaying. So the arrow storm, you're looking for that. Anything else that you kind of you got your your, your eyes on, your sights on that you feel you need to try and pin down by, by We need we need to do more intensive work. I mean, the project finishes in April. We would have to put another programme of work together, get the funding for it. But if we could, then what I'd like to do is rework the whole area again mm. to recover a more dense pattern of artefacts. Because the more objects you get, the clearer the pattern should become. So that would be one priority. Make sure we've got the boundaries right. Yeah. Um, we still, in one or two areas, are not sure we've got the very extent of the scatter. And then look for the arrows, because the arrows are the thing that... You know, you know you're within 200 metres yeah. if you find the arrows. Yeah. Um, so that's the, that, that, I think, would be the last step down down the road to sorting out the battlefield. Well, I look forward to coming back and, and, and talking to you when you found those arrows. <laughs> OK, one last question, yeah. which takes you out of your, sort of your battlefield, archaeology's own comfort... This this battle, Bosworth is is you know it's it's really famous in terms of British history, English history because it's yeah. with Richard the Third. What is it about this battle and Richard the Third that's that makes us so excited about about the story? Gosh, well, he's, he, I, there's a whole series of things, isn't there? I mean, it's he's the last English king to die on the battlefield. He is famous or infamous among English kings for various reasons. It's the event that brings the Tudors to the throne. And in, for, for many people, the Tudor era is the period when England becomes an important power. Yeah. There is so much that hinges on that change. And I guess the fact the battlefield was lost yeah. is another element that has made people really you know, interested in it. Perhaps the interest will fade away now we've found it. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 
Need to hire? You need Indeed. In this ad for the Mobile One brand, I have 30 seconds to remind you about your first time driving. Remember the feeling? The freedom? How the world felt bigger and smaller at the same time? Because you were in the driver's seat. The truth is driving never changed. You did. You got a job, a phone, and then a phone that was also a computer with emails that could find you anywhere. And then you were trapped. But here's the good news. It's never too late to break free. Mobile One. For the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us slash radio to learn more. That was Glenn Ford. You can read his comprehensive account on the new finds from Bosworth in the March issue of BBC History magazine. And now, before we go on to our next interview, which is all about rationing during the Second World War, let me just remind you that our website, bbchistorymagazine.com, is full of great content that you'll surely enjoy if you like the podcast. Here's a snippet from our audio guide to Warwick, for example. But before you go down the steps into the chapel, glance up to your right. As well as a rather alarming-looking skeleton, you'll see the memorial brass of Beecham's parents, which was moved here after the Great Fire. That's one of our regular series of historic town and city guides that you can find on the website. Just go to the Visit History section. We also have a weekly TV and radio roundup, regular history in the news stories, Friday history quiz, and thought-provoking opinions from our historical blogger, Nicholas Kinlock. Do take a look around if you have a moment. Now, during the turmoil of the Second World War, the British government had a real challenge to keep this island nation in essential supplies. And so, in January 1940, it introduced food rationing. Earlier, I spoke to Ines Weiniger Bajewoska, who writes for our March issue, about the effect that this had on the nation's population. Now, firstly, could you remind us why rationing was necessary and at what point in the war it began? Okay, so um, basically I think it's important for people to appreciate that food rationing was part of a comprehensive system of government control of food, which included all imports as well as produce from farms and also included food subsidies, price controls and numerous other regulations. So the consumer rationing is just one aspect of this wider total system of control, which is necessary for a total war intended to mobilize as many resources as possible for the war effort. There were several reasons why rationing was necessary and introduced. One of the um, important points to remember is the precedent of the First World War. In uh, the First World War, no rationing was introduced at first, and there were rising prices, food queues, and and resulting industrial unrest in 1917-18. And this was seen as a threat to morale and the war war effort, and rationing was finally introduced in 1918 and then abolished in 1920. So by the uh, run-up of the Second World War, this precedent was still very much up in people's minds and planning for a potential or possible future war and food policy within it actually began in 1936. And by, by 1939, by the summer of 39, before the outbreak of war, 50 million ration books had been printed and distributed. And the Ministry of Food was immediately established. So the precedent is one big factor. More generally, the role, importance of rationing was to yeah, channel resources to the war effort. And Britain was one of the world's largest food importers. This was important both with regard to shipping space economy of shipping space and also foreign exchange, particularly in the period before Lend-Lease, which started in 1941. Rationing was also necessary as an anti-inflationary policy and then to ensure fair shares and equal sacrifice. 
So those are the, 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 the various key factors. The policy was not introduced until January 1940 because of it, finally the war cabinet had to approve of this and they, they sort of were not sure it was necessary and agreed in October 39 to implement the policy. Uh, and then there is this uh, rationing itself actually started in January 1940 and there's the huge logistical challenge to make it, um, you know, to make it possible that there would be just one ration, no more and no less per person. It's required national registration, issue of ration books, registration with retailers and so on, and all that took several weeks. I see. So it was, it was a huge issue and a huge logistical um, operation. Oh, yeah. And I always yes. think it's amazing they managed to do it at all in an age before computers and all that kind of thing. Yes, indeed. But, um, and how was it received when it was introduced? Um I think people initially were, were very worried about the food situation and particularly the threat of unfair distribution and favoritism. So people, uh, according to some opinion polls and other data, we have actually welcomed or at least accepted rationing. It's also important to bear in mind that um, uh, the rations didn't necessarily initially cut supplies or consumption. Often the levels were lowered after the policy was introduced. Uh, it's important to bear in mind that not all foodstuffs were rationed and uh, there was unlimited um, availability of bread and potatoes as well as restaurant and canteen meals so people didn't have to go hungry. Um, uh, all the evidence suggests that the biggest concern was insecurity, uncertainty and instability. And once the food situation stabilized from 1942 onwards, people were actually quite satisfied. I see. Um, now, of course, during wartime with the men away in the forces, it was mainly um, women of the country who, who sort of handled the um, day-to-day um, you know, rationing situation. Um, and the government actually saw their role as quite a vital one to the war effort, didn't they? Oh, yes, they did. I think it's important to bear in mind that many men were living at home and many men were working in, in vital industries and in all sorts of other walks of life. So it wasn't women weren't in charge because the men were gone so much, but because it was very much a, a society in which a traditional gender order was uh, uh, firmly entrenched. Women did housework, cooking, shopping, uh, and all that sort of stuff, and, and very few men kept house for themselves. Uh, and therefore, um, it was obvious that women would be the ones who had to um, implement the policy. It's interesting to know that even at the height of mobilization, when many women were also working, the majority of adult women were still full-time housewives. And um, the role was essential because in order to maintain civilian health and morale, uh, people had to be fed reasonably well and at the household level this was the task of the housewife. So the government recognized that, there's some quotations also in the article about that, uh, and women's or housewives battle on the so-called kitchen front was seen as, um, as critical to maintaining the wider war effort as, as that of any other uh, essential worker or um, even of the soldier because the war was very long and tedious and if people were uh, you know, getting ill because they didn't have anything to eat, that would have um, threatened the war effort. Indeed. And um, one of the quotes that you have in your feature um, is, is of a Home Intelligence uh, Morale Report, which described food cues as a bigger menace to public morale than several serious German air raids. So it was obviously something that was quite important, the government felt. 
Morale reports were compiled uh, by the Ministry of Information on a weekly basis, starting in October 1940 and going through until the end of 1944. And they were based on a whole range of different sources, including police reports, censorship, voluntary organizations, and so on, to check or gauge the state of morale in response to inconveniences such as rationing. And by 19, in, in 1941, early in 41, discontent with food was quite intense. And part of that was due to the fact that um, the food uh, control system hadn't been fully developed. Uh, and, and the government addresses the uh, discontent that is respect, you know, re- represented in the quote, uh, extensive curing, partly through extension of the uh, cheese, uh, rationing of cheese in May 1941, but most importantly, the introduction of so-called points rationing in December 1941, which rationed uh, uh, canned goods and various types of processed foods and dried fruit and various other items. A wide range of packaged and processed foods were now rationed. And this scheme was very popular. And from 1942 onwards, uh, there are lots of quotations expressing satisfaction with the food situation, considering there's a war on, we're doing very well kind of thing. So uh, uh, the government was able to control this discontent and ultimately um, managed to achieve considerable satisfaction with the food situation. I see. Now, talking of morale, um, it wasn't just food that was rationed, was it? Because um, clothing and soap were also rationed. um, And this also hit uh, women quite hard, didn't it? Yes, yeah, clothes rationing is an interesting uh, policy, again, intended to save labor prevent, and raw materials and prevent price rises. Uh, and the, uh, uh, there's a quotation in the article of Mrs. Milburn saying the margarine coupons were used. And the interesting thing was they had to make this pol- keep this policy very secret so people didn't buy lots of clothes in the weeks before uh, rationing started. And they announced it in June 1941, and then people had an unused uh, margarine sheet of margarine coupons in their food ration book, which wasn't used at that time. And they said, these will now be your clothes ration coupons, which was kind of bizarre. Uh, It came as a complete shock and surprise to people. And uh, discontent, uh, in contrast with the food situation, remained, particularly among women, younger women, concerned mostly about their own appearance, shortages, especially of silk stockings that everybody coveted highly. And um, mothers and housewives were concerned about the problems of finding enough clothes for children, expected mothers uh, uh, for, for maternity wear. And in 1942, they included household linen on the ration and also cut the amount uh, of stuff you could buy, and this caused considerable discontent. And we, in those very same home intelligence morale reports, complaints about the clothing situation and also difficulties of finding shoes for children, all that kind of stuff, continue as long as the reports are compiled. By contrast, the soap issue wasn't too much of a problem. Uh, there were lots of uh, people eligible for extra rations and many products such as certain detergents or shaving soap were not included. Uh, the soap was rationed because it was uh, the fat-based, a fat-based product, um, and fats were in short supply. But that wasn't very important, really, in terms of uh, people's major concern. But the clothing ration scheme was never really popular at all. I see. Um, and so when, finally, when did rationing come to an end? 
So the policy continued for a very long time after the war, for uh, partly uh, in, in the transition period, and also it was part of uh, the Labour government's kind of uh, continuation of a sort of fair shares type regime. The Conservatives came to power in 1951, and they were committed to decontrol and to return to a free market and price mechanism in consumer goods and uh, particularly foodstuffs. But they were also worried a bit about balance and payment and inflation, so uh, it took a little while to introduce the policy. And from 1952 onwards, they gradually dismantled many of the wartime-type controls that were still in place, and rationing is gradually uh, abolished, and it culminates in the final ending of rationing in July 1954 when meat, bacon, and ham and then the Ministry of Food itself, which had administered all this pol- these policies right from the start of the war, was abolished and merged with the Ministry of Agriculture at the end of that year. And that was Ines Feiniger by Javoska. You can read her feature in our latest issue. Also, you can visit an exhibition about the subject at the Imperial War Museum in London. It's called The Ministry of Food and it runs until January 2011. Find out more at www.iwm.org.uk. So BBC History magazine is published each month. You can find it in all good news agents in the UK for just £3.80. You can save money and ensure that you never miss an issue by taking advantage of one of our great subscription deals, whether you're in the UK or overseas. You can find details on the website and the URL once more is www.bbchistorymagazine.com. So that's it for this month. We'll have another podcast in a month or so. And in that, we'll be talking about the restoration of Charles II and the role of chocolate in Britain's empire. Thank you for listening. <laughs>